All right, let's go ahead and ask the Lord's blessing on our time, and uh, then we will begin. Father, thank you that uh, we again get to come into your house as your people, and uh, it seems uh, like every week uh, that uh, it gets better. There's uh, a momentum, I feel, that's, uh, that's building in this place, and uh, I pray that that would continue. We thank you for your encouragement, and even as uh, my brothers and sisters saying, for the joy that is here because of that, that even in the midst of uh, persecution, uh, that we can have that joy, and because uh, we know that uh, we are blessed uh, when uh, others speak evil uh, of us because of you, and uh, we know that we are also blessed when we take a stand for you and I'm so thankful for all the, the wonderful and encouraging stories uh, that we've heard over the past couple of weeks of just that. And Lord, I pray as uh, we are again equipped here today, I pray that uh, you would use that to, uh, to keep us strong for you, Lord. We know that strength comes uh, from understanding. And Father, I pray also that uh, you would use it to advance your kingdom here in this world. In Jesus, our King's name we pray. Amen. Does anyone hear that kind of buzz sound? Does anyone hear that? Okay. Uh, if you do know what it is back there, turn it off. Um, if not, <laughs> if not, I'll, I'll live with it. It's okay. Um, there's just something somewhere. Somewhere. Um, but okay, if you don't hear it, that's good. Let's go ahead and uh, begin into our study. I do believe that we've got... Uh, Quite a bit of uh, information to get through. I don't believe as uh, much as we had last week, but nonetheless, I want to jump right in uh, to conserve as much uh, time as we possibly can. We'll start at the top as we always do with the intro there. Safely navigating our souls to the shores of heaven requires we spy the lies that lead to shipwreck and the truth those lies often conceal. Hence the, the reason for the title, Spy the lie, and that's what we've been doing then over the past several weeks is uh, determining where those uh, lies are and, and determining, uh, in contrast then to those lies, uh, what it is that God's Word actually teaches. By way then of review, the first, you don't have what it takes to live for God and get to heaven. Uh, we saw from places like Second Peter 1.3 as well as Deuteronomy 30 verses 14 through 17, that uh, uh, we do indeed have everything that we need for life and godliness, and we can do, we can obey what it is that God has given to us by way of command. Number two, the devil poses no threat to the Christian. That too is a lie. We saw that from places like 1 Peter 5, 8, which uh, teaches us that the devil is actually prowling around looking for Christians. Peter is, of course, writing to the church looking for Christians to devour. Number three, the consensus of pagans, our thoughts, our spiritual beliefs, and our feelings are all things we can, we can trust when attempting to discern truth. Again, not true. According to Jesus, truth is not found in any of those things, but rather in the word of God. Hence the reason Isaiah can say, 
to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this, it is because they have no dawn, because they are in spiritual darkness. And last week, we considered this lie. The Bible is your only spiritual authority. And I call that solo scriptura uh, in contrast to sola scriptura, that uh, historical position within the church which uh, teaches that the Bible is the final authority but not our only authority. In my reading in uh, Jeremiah, I came across uh, this verse, Jeremiah 3.15, just uh, last week. And uh, it applies, I believe it applies to what we talked about under that particular lie. And that is that uh, God has also given authority to his uh, church, the authority for interpretation in relation to the Bible. And uh, again, I believe that this verse speaks to this, where God making the promise in relation to the uh, new covenant to come says this, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And uh, I'm sure that when Jeremiah's original audience read those or read that particular verse, that that was comforting to them. It was comforting to know that God would provide those kinds of shepherds, shepherds after his own heart, and shepherds who would do the work of feeding them with right understanding as it related to his word. And how ironic then that is to the world that we live in today, which seems to uh, be very distrustful of shepherds in that way, or to want to uh, to recognize that God has given such authority uh, to the church, and that uh, such authority is again a good thing. It's just part of uh, what God has promised in His love, in His covenant love to His people, that He would give these kinds of shepherds who would have the capacity, who would have the ability, who would have the anointing, who would have the special help of the Holy Spirit in this way to do just that, to interpret, correctly interpret his word so that his people could be fed with knowledge and understanding. This week you had a question related to the authority of the early church, something to the effect of, does the early church or the early church fathers should we perceive them as authoritative? Well, a text I'd like you to consider in relation to that is Nehemiah chapter 9. Very interesting text as it relates to this specific issue. Here, Nehemiah is is praying and... Uh, As part of his prayer, he says something very interesting, and I'll tell you exactly what that is if you don't know already uh, once we've read the verses. Starting in verse 7, he says this, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram. Nehemiah 9, 7, this is uh, in the historical books, which means uh, before the wisdom literature, so before the Psalms and the Proverbs. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham, You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you've kept your promise for you are righteous. The reason he's saying that uh, 
God has kept his promises because uh, Nehemiah lived in the, uh, the time after the, uh, the Babylonian exile. And so uh, the Jews are coming back into this land, the land of the Canaanite, Hittite, Amorite, etc., etc., that God had already given to them and that they had been taken out of because of judgment or because of their disobedience that led to judgment. God was righteous because he kept his uh, promise in that way. The piece, however, I want you to think about with me is what he says just prior to that in verse 8. You found his heart faithful before you, and based on that you made covenant. You made with him the covenant, meaning the Abrahamic covenant. Now think about that. If you know anything about Genesis chapter 12, uh, or 12 through 17, that uh, portion where we see God uh, interacting with uh, Abraham and changing his name from Abram to Abraham. That portion where we see God uh, making covenant with Abraham, uh, there is no mention, no mention whatsoever uh, to uh, this fact that the reason that God made covenant with Abraham is because. As Nehemiah says here, you found his heart faithful before you. As a matter of fact, this uh, does real damage to the Calvinist position known as unconditional election, which I used to preach in this church. And uh, one of the, uh, the key texts that's used to support that position are those uh, texts related to the person of Abraham. And that uh, when God chose Abraham, he did so unconditionally, meaning there was nothing in Abraham that caused God to choose him. Not so. Not so. According again to Nehemiah, he found his heart faithful. That's the reason, again, notice in the text that he made covenant with him. The point then not to miss as it relates to the issue of authority in the church or the covenant community. Think about it. It wasn't in the scripture. Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 17 make no mention whatsoever, make mention, no mention whatsoever of God finding this in uh, Abraham. So the question is, where did Nehemiah get such knowledge? Uh, of course, based on what we see here, uh, what he says must be true. It's now in Scripture, Nehemiah being the author later, after the Pentateuch, after those things in relation to Je- uh, Genesis were written down, many thousands of years after, or rather not many, but a thousand years later or more. Where did he get this uh, particular knowledge from? Well, uh, the most reasonable answer is that he got it from the church, from the early church, meaning the old covenant church, the old covenant community of Israel, who always believed this as the reason for why it is that God chose Abraham. In other words, this was 
the authority of the early covenant community. This was their position, their interpretation of why it is that God chose Abraham or Abram. Which means that Nehemiah, as well as the Jews, for at least a thousand years or more, believed as authoritative something more than just the Scriptures. Because again, the Scriptures does not contain this information until the Scriptures of Nehemiah came along. Until then, it wasn't there, even though it was always there in the covenant community. Again, that's the only reasonable position, and if we had time, I could show you other texts that speak the same way. A good example from the New Testament is what we find in Jude with the prophecy of Enoch. Again, someone very old in redemptive history or human history, Enoch, going back to almost the beginning itself. And yet this, as a New Covenant or New Testament believers, is the first time we're hearing about it when Jude wrote it down, and yet we know, or at least it's reasonable to believe. It's the only, as a matter of fact, the only reasonable position is to believe that this was something that was always a part of Jewish oral tradition. In other words, that this was always a part of the church and the teaching of the church or the church's authority in interpretation to decide that what uh, had been passed along was indeed true. Until one day, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was written down and it became part of Scripture. And so to answer uh, that question Going back then to uh, what you had last week for your covenant life groups. uh, Are the early church fathers authoritative? Yes and no. Yes, from the standpoint that they reflect what the church was teaching at that time. And so it should be taken into consideration with what we are believing here today as uh, the church. But they were not inspired And there is a distinction, a very important distinction to be made between authority and inspiration. And one of the things that we need to take into consideration anytime we look at something uh, that is earlier in its source, most especially as it relates to the early church fathers, is what they considered to be canonical. And here's uh, something that was true about most of the early church fathers. What they believed at that time to be canonical was larger than what we believe today to be canonical. What we hold to as canonical or as the scriptures today includes 66 books. Well, as part of the early, early New Covenant church, many of their Bibles included what is called today the deuterocanonical books or the Apocrypha. You see this still in the Roman Catholic Bibles. At some point early in church history, that was removed and for good reason. Because the Jews, in relation to Torah, or what we know as the Old Testament, did not recognize those books that were written after. Those books being related to uh, the Maccabean result and the Hasmonean dynasty. And so, though they may be important to our understanding, they are not inspired. But again, that's important to take into consideration because there are many things in the church fathers that are related to what we find in those books. Things like purgatory. 
You say, well, if you listen to the, uh, the early church fathers and you take them as authoritative, then why don't you hold to that? Because I understand where they're getting it from, and it's, uh, it's really good practice if you think about it. They were just being cons- uh, consistent with what they believed the canon to be at that time. And so again, authoritative, but not inspired. And again, then the answer is yes and no. It's both. Well, that takes us to number five, or our new material for today. Spying the lie. Stop trying to carry the heavy burden of obedience to the law and start resting in God's free grace. And when you, you, you know, if you do it and you teach this, you've got to say it in some kind of breathy way. Start resting in God's free grace. Right? Well, that's a lie. And uh, it's one of the most destructive and dangerous lies out there. Why do I say that? Well, be, uh, because it's uh, very popular, that uh, makes it uh, very dangerous. A lot of people believe this. And number two, because it, it, it plays to the heartstrings, does it not? We, uh, we do have a responsibility, and uh, like most responsibilities or obligations, uh, they are at times heavy or burdensome, and uh, we'd love for someone to come along and say, uh, you don't need to worry about that anymore. It was like uh, the day that uh, I could afford to have somebody else mow my lawn. <laughs> and so that kind of a lie, it sells, right? It spreads like Second uh, Timothy 2 says, it uh, Spreads like gangrene. Heresy spreads in that way because it appeals, right, to uh, our laziness or our lack of uh, wanting to be culpable for anything. We want all the benefits uh, this world has to offer, but uh, we don't want the responsibility or the culpability that goes along with it. Hence the, the number one lie and uh, rule uh, being promoted uh, today in the world, I, I believe it's really the, uh, the spirit of our age, and it's at, uh, actually at the center, as we talked about uh, some time ago, uh, what is known as modern-day Satanism, and that is the idea that you should be able to exercise your free will, do whatever you want, without consequence. No obligation, no culpability. So as I said, this kind of a lie is a, a very... Uh, it's very tempting to believe, right? And when you hear preachers say things like this, stop trying to carry that burden. Right? And uh, you preach this kind of a thing and you say, you've been burdened, haven't you? You love Christ, but you just, uh, you have a hard time obeying Him. You're, you're always failing. The preacher looks out to his audience and there's people dotting their eyes. And going, right? And you say, well, I'm here today to, to deliver you from that. You're going to rest in Jesus' free grace. And they really believe that by doing that, they're giving all kinds of praise to Jesus. Kind of funny, sometimes I think about that in relation to uh, children. Imagine a parent telling their child to uh, clean their room, and, and uh, they check in on that particular child, and they say, uh, you know, Billy and Sally are always the two kids. Billy doesn't do it, and uh, so Dad says, hey, uh, what's, what gives here? And he said, Dad, you know, I, I realize at the end of the day that uh, you don't want me to be burdened. 
Like Jesus, you want to take that burden for me, and uh, the best way that I can glorify you and really show that I do trust you, that I do love you, is to let you clean it for me. And Dad, I'm going to rest in that free grace that you've given to me. Well, here's the truth. And again, that's what we want. The truth, again, is uh, we've already uh, discovered and talked about. It doesn't reside in us, our spiritual beliefs, our thoughts, whatever. We can have a good laugh over it, but is it true? Again, we need to go to God's word. Your word is truth. Here's what God's word teaches. That his grace is never free in the sense that it doesn't expect something in return. I told you about a book that uh, speaks this, a, a quite large book called Paul and the Gift. The last name of the author is uh, Barclay, I believe. And in that, he talks about uh, this term uh, grace and uh, how it's often associated with that other word, uh, gift. We're going to see that here in just a minute in Ephesians 2. Well, it's never free in that sense. In what sense? That uh, it doesn't expect something in return. You might say it this way. You know, joining the army is, uh, is free. <laughs> it is free. But it doesn't mean that they don't expect something when you join. Rather, because of God's gift of free grace, we are now expected to live, expected to live faithfully obedient lives. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, and again, all of this, beloved, this whole series is for you, for the purpose of you being able to give the right answer, or to give the answer to the one who asks, 1 Peter 3, and uh, the chances of you in your attempts to engage the outside world, the chances of you running into people like this is pretty high. Because again, it is very popular. People think this way. And uh, so one of the questions you'll get is, what about, what about grace? Right? What about grace? All this obligation. What about grace? As though grace somehow negates obligation. But that's what it means So. Uh, when we talk about it as free or as a, as a gift, there's no strings attached. Well, if we go to the text of Scripture, we see something very different. Ephesians 2, probably the best text in relation to this particular subject, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Another text that really hurts the, uh, the Calvinist position, which wants to believe that you're regenerated or you are regenerated or born again, you're made alive by that grace of God's election, and as a result of that, you believe. Well, here we're told very clearly that no, you're saved. You believe through faith. That's the instrument, which means faith must come first, not after. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, is, uh, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And so here's the connection then between grace, it is the grace, the salvation is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, not our workmanship, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Saving grace, according to what he says here, is not, again, our own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works. We are instead his workmanship. That's all true. Yea and amen. Yet, 
As Paul also says here, as we just read, God did such work with the sole intention that we should, in response, again, notice, walk in those good works. The whole purpose for extending his gracious, undeserving, in other words, favorable, that word gracious means favor, favorable disposition, his salvation to us, was with the expectation that we would then walk in those good works he had, as he says, prepared beforehand or in advance. I.e., what is he talking about there? Works prepared beforehand. Good works prepared beforehand. Well, he's talking about God's commands in the law. How do I know that? Well, if you uh, trace that out in Scripture, that idea of works when reference to good works, uh, what you find in general is that they are predominantly referring to God's law, obeying God's commands, observing God's law. That's doing good works. And so here, those works prepared beforehand, well, when was God's law established? Well, long before or beforehand, before the Ephesian believers to whom Paul is now writing even existed. And so in summary then, what is he saying? He's saying to these believers and to us, God gave his grace to us in salvation with the expectation that we would respond in obedience. That we would walk in those things that he has already established for his people to walk in, i.e. his commands, his laws. Uh, We see this, by the way, Back in chapter 1, this is really where he begins the epistle, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Notice the reason that he did it, the purpose, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He didn't do it and say, what you do with it after that, no strings attached. No, there was an expectation. Uh, Here he talks about that expectation as uh, holiness and blameless living. And we've talked about uh, those two very pregnant uh, terms I've told you before. uh, Holiness, intolerance for sin, blameless, uh, observance of the law. That's at least how the Jews understood those two terms. Holiness or holy and blameless. But again, the point not to miss here is that uh, there's an expectation attached to it. God's grace is not free in that sense as though uh, God expects nothing. And so when people say, what about grace? Our answer should be, uh, or our response should be, what about it? 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 1. <clears throat> Working together with him, Paul says, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, which implies what? That that grace can be received in vain. You've received it, but ultimately what it was intended to accomplish, which we know going back to Ephesians 2, is our salvation 
Well, somewhere in between receiving it and uh, standing before God on Judgment Day, something was lost. What we started with, we didn't finish or end with. Paul's concerned here, obviously, for the Corinthians in that way. So again, working together with him, we appeal to you. The him there, working together with him, is Christ. Therefore, we are ambassadors, verse 20, chapter 5, for Christ. Working together with him, then we appeal to you. You might receive this in vain. We don't want that. Skipping down to verse 14. Here's one way in which uh, Paul is uh, concerned that they might receive it in vain. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? People who refuse to keep the law. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since then we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In summary then, I believe what he's saying here is if we do not respond to the grace we receive with holy living, meaning separated from lawless people and those other things which defile body and spirit, then God will not continue to be a father to us and we will not continue as his children. Notice there again in those verses, verse 17, touch no unclean thing. This is dealing with that issue of holiness that he brings explicitly up there then in verse 1 of chapter 7. Do that, come out from their midst, be separate from them. Again, verse 17, dealing with holiness. Then I will welcome you. It's conditional, is it not? Only if you do these things, then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. Going back up to verse 16, we have there our Bundes formal or the marriage covenant vow. I will be their God. They will be my people. That's God's promise, but that uh, promise is again conditioned. That gracious promise, that grace that's extended to us is again conditional. Otherwise, that initial grace will be considered as received in vain. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, which is another text that should give fits to the Calvinists. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, also speaking to this issue of something being received in vain. He starts out in... Uh, Verse 4, by saying, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. That's uh, where they get the idea of election from, choosing, just uh, or that verse uh, or that word they're chosen. It is that uh, term or where they're getting the idea of election. Again, that he has elected you. We know that, he says, you are the elect. You are the elect, and yet to these kinds of people, the elect... Chapter 3, verse 5, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent, Paul writing, 
to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Clearly, Paul didn't see election as enough. Because otherwise, why would he be concerned about uh, these, con- these uh, particular people somehow being tempted to the point that uh, their labor among them would be in vain? The initial grace being in vain. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 16. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. No root of of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Notice that. Fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no one... The Bible's written to believers... So the no one there that he's speaking about are people who have already obtained it to some degree if they're believers or considered believers. And yet he says that they fail to obtain it in the ultimate sense, in the end. That no one who is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal, that they're like that. Why? Verse 17, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Here confirming what I just said, that this uh, grace he's speaking of there in verse 15 is this future grace. The point at which we are now ready to inherit the blessing and it's not there. Like it was for Esau, he desired to inherit it, but he was rejected For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The author's point, grace expects holy living. Again, that's where he starts, strive for peace and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. It expects that. It expects also the promotion of lawful practice within the covenant community and sexual purity Otherwise, the salvation received in grace will be permanently lost in apostasy, no matter how we may regret it later. Hence, the reason he mentions Esau, though he sought it with tears, he regretted it, but it didn't change anything. There's a permanency to these things. And again, that's the author's point. Which means we understand what Paul is talking about when he says we fear that uh, it was in vain. This grace being ultimately in vain, apostasy, lost in apostasy. Well, what keeps it from that? What does God expect? Holy living, according to the author of Hebrews, in agreement with Paul. Holy living. I say they're also lawful practice within the covenant community. Where am I getting that from? Well, uh, that phrase that no root of bitterness, no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many be defiled. That comes from uh, Deuteronomy uh, 29. And uh, if you have a a reference Bible, it'll actually uh, tell you that, uh, that this comes from Deuteronomy 29. 
And uh, if you turn back there, another text that you should be familiar with, uh, this is uh, God's uh, warning to the old covenant community as it relates to apostasy. Verse 18, beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord your God to go and serve idols of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. That's what uh, the writer of Hebrews is referring to there by uh, saying uh, a root of bitterness. What does he mean? What does God mean here by that or what does that look like? And here now is why I'm saying one who promotes lawfulness within the community. Because this person is just the opposite of that. They're promoting just the opposite of that. Hence the reason the writer of Hebrews can say they defile many by it. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, and if we were to go back and we were to read those words, it's all about faithful obedience. Chapter 28, for example, it starts that way. Here where you have the blessings and the curses. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord. Perfect? No. Faithfulness? Yes. Can we do that? Absolutely. Perfect? No. Can we be faithful? Yes. What does God require? If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments. Beware, however, The one whose heart is turning away and is uh, attempting to turn others away by their own turning away. This is that root of bitterness that defiles many. In this way, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, you need to be faithful if you're to realize the blessings. If you realize that future grace, which God's initial grace is a, a test, or excuse me, a taste, a foretaste of. One who, when he hears this, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. That's the evangelical. I have grace, and so I can rest. Though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, I will be safe. God says this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. You say, well, this is Old Testament uh, God got counseling between the old and the new. He's a softer, gentler, kinder God now, and so he's not like that anymore. And yet the writer of Hebrews is quoting from this very text. Hebrews, by the way, even though I heard not too long ago that one evangelical thought the book of Hebrews was in the Old Testament, it's actually in the new. Notice the end result. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him Apostasy. You do that and this is what it will lead to. You think that way and this is what it will lead to. You think that the grace is free, meaning no strings attached, no expectation, and uh, you, pro- you promote that kind of lawless living. You don't need to worry about it. Don't carry that burden. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Notice that, that the Lord, by the way, uh, there we're told that the Lord is angry. Must mean that anger in and of itself is not sinful. 
Hence the reason in Ephesians 4, it can command us to be angry, but do not sin. There is a difference. There is a time and place for anger, and uh, for God, it's uh, when people refuse to listen to everything he says, when they pluck verses out of their context, redefine them to mean no obligation. When people do that, they become a root of bitterness. They become those kinds of people believing and preaching and teaching that are a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Not according to me, according to God. That's the kind of person, and notice going back up to verse 18, God equates that person to a person who is turning away from the Lord their God to go serve other gods, the gods of the nations. That kind of a person, because of the false gospel they preach, actually is preaching, even though they use the name Jesus, even though they say that they believe the same things we do and read the same book, are actually promoting other gods. To believe that there is no obligation means you are doing just that. That you are guilty also then of idolatry. Again, notice he puts those two things together here in this text. How are you leading others, turning away from the Lord, and causing others to go and serve the gods of the nations? By believing that God's sworn covenant does not include obligation. That once you're in, you're in for life. That grace comes with no strings attached. I remember one time, uh, it was in a study, and uh, we were talking about some of these uh, things, and a woman said to me, your God is a monster. And I said, to the unbelieving, he is just that. And one day you'll meet him, and you'll probably think he is just that because of his anger toward you. When you say, let the rocks and the hills fall upon us, that we may flee from the wrath or hide from the wrath of the Lamb. Moving on, 5.2, and this is just a really casting or framing what we just talked about in a different way in the form of a question, again, to help you as you attempt to answer these things with others, if God's grace expects nothing in return, then why does God still promise to pay everyone according to their, not Christ's deeds? Does that make any sense to you? If it's all about grace, and this is what you hear, it's all about grace. Today, it's all about grace. It wasn't that way before. Uh, Two-thirds of human history or two-thirds of the Bible... Redemptive history, it was never that. But now it's that. Uh, God, according to them, doesn't expect anything. If that's the case, if he expects nothing in return, then why does he still promise to pay everyone according to their, not Christ's deeds? What am I talking about? Well, uh, one of the, uh, another one of these very common uh, phrases in relation to God that we see throughout the Bible, meaning both the Old and the New Testament, is that God will repay everyone according to their deeds or repay a man according to his deeds. That comes up again both in the Old Testament as well as in the New. For example, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And according to uh, Scripture, uh, what that means, when it says according to their deeds, what determines that, good or bad, is whether or not those deeds were uh, 
uh, in compliance with God's law or not. Whether they were lawful or whether they were lawless. God will repay everyone according to their deeds. And so here is Paul taking that phrase that is used throughout the Old Testament and still using it under the New Testament or the New Covenant. God will still pay everyone according to their deeds. Well, that seems to me at least to be a non sequitur when it comes to this idea of grace somehow being free, meaning no strings attached. Why is God still concerned with my deeds if I have no obligation to such deeds? Psalm 62, interesting text uh, in the Old Testament where we find uh, this particular phrase. Uh, And the reason I say it's interesting because it's uh, packed in with or it's included as the explanation for God's uh, covenant love. Deuteronomy 7.9, which is another uh, portion of text that we find elsewhere or words in relation to God. Deuteronomy 7.9, Know therefore, O Israel, that the Lord your God is God, a faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Over and over, David does this, I believe, or Solomon, rather, in the dedication of the temple. You see it over and over throughout Scripture. So it's considered God's, uh, when you see the word steadfast love, it's talking about God's covenant love. The promises, in other words, he made to his covenant people. His obligation to be their God and that they would be his people, which means that he would care for them. As long as that covenant remained intact, that he would care for them with the expectation that they keep their end of the deal, their end of the covenant or obligation. And we see that, as I said here, is really uh, the explanation for why he will render to a man according to his work. Notice in verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, covenant love. Whenever you see that in Scripture, abounding in steadfast love, it means God has covenant love. And that love, because it's covenant love, is steadfast. It perseveres because it's not based on how God feels. See, that's covenant love. I love my wife and continue to love my wife, even though at times I want to strangle her and choke her out. I didn't say do that, but I have those kinds of sinful feelings. But I love her, and I'm faithful to her, and I'm pure in my relationship with her. Why? Because I don't have feelings, or I I can't see another woman, and she's not attractive to me? No, because I understand that my love is grounded in the covenant commitment, not my feelings. And therefore, it is, instead of a fickle love that changes every time I go to the grocery store... It it, it is a steadfast, persevering love because it is a love that is based on the covenant promise that I made to her. And that is God's love to us. It is a steadfast love. But notice here, as part of that, how he explains this. For you, notice, for, it is a steadfast love. That belongs to you, O Lord. Why? For you will render to a man according to his work. You see why I say that this is uh, interesting? Or this particular text as it relates to that phrase uh, that God will render to a man according to his work or repay him according to his deeds. Because he uses that to explain this idea of covenant love. It is defined by rendering or giving to everyone according to their work. 
This understanding should cause us to realize that chapter 4 then, going back to what I quoted from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, to realize that chapter 4 is not the first place that Paul addresses this principle in 2 Timothy. It is actually first addressed, it is first addressed in chapter 2. If you turn back over there, or turn to that text now. Verses 11 and following The saying is trustworthy for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful. Faithful in what sense? To do what he said he would do, which is what? He's already told us in the verse just prior. If we deny him, he will deny us. You're unfaithful, you deny him, what will he do? He will be faithful to what he's promised, his covenant. And isn't that what these verses are all about here? Isn't that the principle you would say that is being communicated by Paul here? If we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. God's going to give us according to what we deserve. He's going to give us according to our deeds. If they're good, we'll be rewarded. If we're not, we'll be punished. God's covenant or steadfast love. Everyone will get what they deserve. By the way, if this principle were only true under the Old Testament, which is the position of evangelicals, whether they realize it or not, then God has morally compromised himself since his reason for responding this way in the past was due to justice. The reason that uh, God does this is because of justice, which means if God is no longer doing that, if God is no longer responding to people according to their deeds... And again, this is their position. If their position is that grace is so free that there is no strings attached, there's no obligation, you need to get this. Then what they're saying is that God is a morally compromised God. That God is now sinning. Why? Because this particular position, as it relates to his love, is actually more about his justice. That's why if you're going to understand God, uh, then in the hub and the center that every other attribute of God is connected to is this particular attribute of justice. Hence the reason places like Psalm 89 say that his throne is established on justice, which means that even his love is a just love. You say, well, how or why are you saying that it's connected to justice? Well, God giving us what we deserve, which again is, uh, as the author of uh, Psalm 62 says, is uh, what it means to have steadfast love, true covenant and perfect love. Is that not the same principle that undergirds justice? What am I talking about? Well, that the punishment must fit the crime. Isn't that what that's all about? Deuteronomy 19.21, an eye for an eye. Punishment must fit the crime. Doesn't that just mean we must get exactly what we deserve? You order the burger, you get a burger. Right? It's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful. It's based on his justice. It's what I call, and I, I think I mentioned this last week, it's all Newton's third law. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. You get what you deserve. If God's grace expects nothing in return, then why does God still require his people to practice holiness, which we already saw? 
Considering that again from 1 Peter this time. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 19. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A future grace. Notice that. There's still some grace to come, some favor. And I think that's probably the best way to understand that term because that is literally what the term means is uh, favor. It's translated that way uh, sometimes in the Old Testament. Favor on the favor that will be brought to you. You have favor now. You want favor later on that final day. Prepare your minds for that. What does that look like? As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, notice that, you're not going to get special treatment, in other words, according to each one's deeds. Oh, look at that. Imagine that. Not judged based on Christ or the grace that was given to you through Christ or through faith. If you call on him who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Notice once more the issue God, uh, the issue of God, rather, judging according to our deeds. And as I said, it's impartial. That means it applies to all people. The point then not to miss and why Peter also speaks of our ransom through the precious blood of Christ. What is his point there? Why does he bring that up? Knowing that you were ransomed. Verse 19, with the precious blood. Why does he bring that up? What is the point then not to miss? And why does he include this in it? Here it is. You better be careful. You better be careful. You better, as he says, conduct yourselves with fear, not to mess up what God sacrificed so much for. You better not mess up the grace. There was precious, precious blood that was spilt for you. You better not mess it up. You better not mess it up. We better be careful. Don't mess it up. God paid a lot for you. If we do, God's judgment against us will be no less impartial again. It will be impartial judgment. It will be no less than that issued against the unbelieving in the world. It will actually, according to Hebrews 10, 27 through 30, it will be worse. How much more severe punishment, it says. Hence again, the reference to conduct yourselves with fear. The third way of framing this, if God's grace expects nothing in return, then why does God still warn his people of the possibility of missing out on future grace in heaven if they don't live holy, obedient lives? And again, I'm giving these to you and framing them a little bit differently than what we already talked about and have established or just got done speaking about, especially as it relates to this issue of future grace, so that you have different ways of coming at this with others. These are the kinds of questions you want to be asking those people who say, what about grace? If grace uh, is what you think it is, 
And so the first way to respond to that is, what about it? Let them define that because they're the one asking the, the question. Well, uh, it doesn't expect anything and uh, you've put this heavy burden of the law. And I'm so glad I go down the street to Billy Bob's church who lies to me and uh, spreads the poisonous fruit of telling me that I don't need it and I'll be safe anyway. Well, if that's true, if God's grace expects nothing in return, then why does God still warn his people of the possibility of mixing out on future grace in heaven if they don't live holy, obedient lives? Remember, that was Hebrews 12. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And it goes on to talk about apostasy, if we do. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and I've just given you a, a smattering of verses here to consider as it relates to this. There are others that we could look at. But for sake of time, Paul here, who is uh, sometimes referred to as the apostle of grace. We're going to turn today to the apostle of grace so that you can rest in grace. And why they call him that is because he begins all his others with the Grace and peace to you. The same apostle in chapter 6, verse 9 of the Corinthians says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous, speaking to them this way, giving them this warning, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Similar words are spoken to the Galatian churches, plural. 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivals, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before. Hey, wait a minute. Maybe he didn't write that, this book with grace and peace to you. Let's just make sure... Uh, maybe he didn't do that here. Grace and peace to you. Um, did he do that here? My brothers who are with me, grace. Oh, there it is in verse 3. Grace to you and peace. Okay, so these are people that he considers to have grace. And yet again he says what? I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm confused. My evangelical friend, I am confused. If grace expects nothing in return, then why does God still warn his people of the possibility of missing out on heaven if they don't live holy, obedient lives? Moving on to the issue of rest, or heavy burdens, where are they getting this from? Well, the only uh, passages that mention or use this kind of language that come from, at least that I'm aware of, are coming from the teaching of Jesus uh, in the book of Matthew. The thing is, is when you uh, dig into those uh, verses, they are not directed against God's laws, but rather the laws and lawlessness of men. Uh, Matthew chapter 11 Text that uh, I'm sure gets quoted a lot in these churches when they're uh, preaching this way. Come to me, all who labor 
and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is our Lord. This is our King. He says those words in their They're good words. I'm sure they were comforting words to the multitudes that were told over and over that he looked upon as people without a shepherd. And as a result, he had compassion for them. That goes back or harkens back to what we saw in Jeremiah as well as what else we're told in Jeremiah about the shepherds that were devouring their flocks because they were not teaching them with God's word. They were not giving them good knowledge and understanding coming from God's word. And I believe that 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 is what Jesus is doing now. He's again alluding back to Jeremiah. Why do I say that? Well, because the majority of what we see, most especially in the teaching of Jesus, are references or allusions to the Old Testament. And uh, biblical scholars will tell you that. They will tell you that that is the majority also of the rest of the New Testament, that they are allusions, one in every uh, three verses at least, are an allusion, a direct allusion, or reference to something in the Old Testament. And so the first question that we want to ask in reading something like this is that, uh, do we find this kind of language anywhere in the Old Testament? This idea of uh, giving rest and Jesus here operating as a shepherd. Come to me. I am gentle and lowly. I will, I will make your yoke easy. Uh, treating us as though we are uh, beasts of burden. That we are sheep. That we are part of his flock. And he says, I will be, as he says in John 10, the good shepherd to you. Come in through me, my gate or my way, and you will find life. And so when we ask that question and we compare uh, the rest uh, of, uh, or we compare that to what we, the rest of what we find in Matthew, uh, in Matthew's gospel, most especially in places like chapter 15 and 23, those that this particular message are buttressed up against are the Pharisees, who are like those shepherds in Jeremiah's uh, book who are devouring the sheep. They're not the good shepherds. They are those who, instead of teaching God's rules or laws, are teaching man-made rules. Matthew chapter 15, this is why Jesus in verses 1 through 9 says, you place upon the people the doctrines of men, and by them you negate the doctrines of God. And by chapter 23, again, we have this idea of heavy burdens being directly attributed to them. He says that they lay heavy burdens upon the people, that they will not lift with one finger. And yet they are, verse 23, lawless people, not keeping all of the law, but only portions of it, being selective to keep the pieces that they wanted or the pieces that were easy, verses 23 and 28. The easier yoke than, again, as I've already said, provided by Jesus, which included the rest and peace of a clean conscience, because that's really what it is, be defined by two things. Bringing the people back to God's law. And you say, well, I know if you're, if you're tracking with me and you're smart enough to pick up on this, and you understand that so far I've just plugged that in there as my understanding. Now I need to prove it. Well, the first text that I would have you consider in relation to this, that what he means by the easier yoke or burden is God's laws, because that's what removes the really burdensome thing in all of our lives, the the guilty conscience. 
And by keeping man's laws, that doesn't remove it, only by keeping God's laws. Well, Matthew 5.17, this is where Jesus starts his ministry. Do not think that I came to abolish those. Until heaven and earth pass away, they will remain in force. But more importantly, again, as I've already alluded to, Jeremiah chapter 6, which I believe is the direct place that Jesus is alluding to. Jeremiah 6. And again, we, we think of that Jeremiah 3 text that I started uh, our time with this morning. I will give you shepherds after my own heart, and uh, uh, they will feed you on knowledge and understanding. And then he says this in verse 16 of chapter 6, Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it. And notice what will happen if you do that, and find rest for your souls. So notice there's our connection, rest. And this now is the good shepherd Jesus is now preaching. Come to me, and I will give you that rest for your souls. I will take your heavy burden, your unnecessary burden, and I will give you a light burden, and you can walk in that. But they said, Jeremiah 6, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention, therefore Hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people. Why? Because they won't listen. The fruit of their devices, repay them according to their deeds. Because they have not paid attention to my words, walk in the ancient paths. What is the ancient path? And as for my law, they have rejected it. What that is the ancient path? His law. The ancient path that gives rest to the soul. Notice it. There in the text, he's telling us, my law. They have rejected it. The end of verse 16. But they said, we will not walk in it. What gives you rest to your soul is not the doing away with God's law, but the giving and the living of God's law. Psalm 119, Psalm 119, verse 165, Psalm 119, I love it, David says this, great peace have those who love your law. Rest, peace. I said this years ago, God's law is there for our protection. It provides for us, as David says here elsewhere in Psalm 119, it, it, it opens up a broad way to us. Freedom. As Jocko likes to say, discipline equals freedom. The law equals freedom. The law gives life. It brings peace. Great peace have those who love the law. Nothing can make them stumble. And so plugging that all back into Jesus' words, come to me. You have been burdened with man's rules. You have been burdened with the idea that you can just rest in grace and you don't have to obey and that somehow you'll feel better about that. You know, the, uh, one of the most popular forms of counseling today is uh, guilt counseling because people have so much of it. And uh, they go to these counselors and they're told similar things that the evangelicals are telling them. Uh, you shouldn't have that guilt. You should just be proud of what you do. 
You need to accept who you are and don't be ashamed of it. Come out of the closet with it. And the evangelical message is really where it started. The only difference is, is that Jesus, is a, he's come out of the closet for you. He's become your holy toilet. He's taken it for you so you don't have to be ashamed. When you take those dirty dumps, just put those in him. Jesus says, no, that's what keeps people burdened. That's why people have so many mental issues, because they can't find the peace that only comes from accepting and living God's law. Hence the reason God says, when you do that, Deuteronomy 4, the nations will look upon you and they will say, what wise and understanding people who have this Lord and have this Number two, I believe that Jesus in these words is also speaking to his fulfillment of the only portion of the law that was ever considered unbearable. That is, as we call them, the clean laws. They've taken different names or monikers over the years. Clean laws is what we call them here. Sometimes they're called the, uh, uh, the ceremonial laws. But they are those uh, laws that were given for the purpose of cleansing. And so that's why uh, I've chosen to take the word clean laws. Circumcision, sacrifice, and special separation. We're cleansed uh, through sacrifice. They were cleansed also through circumcision. And by separation from the unclean. And that included uh, even the Sabbath, the days that they would separate from the others. Acts chapter 15, verses 10 and 11, uh, Peter speaks of uh, these particular laws that way, making the distinction, by the way, within the law. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we, been, or, nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that a person will now be saved through the grace, there it is, of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Verse 9, notice there, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Why? Because by faith we get the work of Christ, his cleansing work in his sacrifice. Colossians 2 calls that also our circumcision. In baptized, we've also received the circumcision. Christ is the fulfillment of those clean laws, the laws necessary for cleansing, which means we don't need to be circumcised in the old way. That's verse 5. That was the controversy. Notice verse 5, but some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the rest of those laws of Moses, those clean laws. No, Jesus has fulfilled that portion. He is our clean law. And we know because of the writer of Hebrews that those former clean laws were ultimately not able to bring the cleansing that is needed Paul even speaks to this in Romans 3 where he says it was nothing more than a Passover atonement rather than true propitiation. So Jesus says, come to me. And that portion that is unbearable, and it was because of uh, the, the numbers of sacrifices that had to be made, because of the pain in circumcision, those things had been removed. This is what Paul, by the way, is referring to in Romans 10, 1 through 10. There he says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Not all of the law, but the law for righteousness. Diatheke, which means either righteousness or can be defined that way, or justification. 
our right standing before God, where we gain salvation, gain or be uh, or are put into that right standing with God. We maintain that a man is justified, theotheke, back in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. So before 10, he says that. Through faith and not the works of the law, the works of the law referring to the clean laws. We know that because of its connection to them. Every time that phrase, works of the law, is used, whether it's in Galatians or in Romans, it's always, uh, we always have mention also of either sacrifice or circumcision or special days, Sabbath, holidays. Galatians 4 speaks to this. These things have now been re- removed. The sacrifice of Christ applied through faith has ended the need for the practice of these laws. The moral commands, however, still apply, hence the reason why Paul is not schizophrenic. And by Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, after saying Christ is the end of the law in Romans chapter 10, he then can say that we need to keep the Ten Commandments. He quotes them literally as the means to loving people because the law or love does no harm to its neighbor. You say, well, what does that look like? I need to know what that looks like. Well, the law tells us what that looks like to love people, which means the law equals love, and love equals the law. That's how you love people. You treat them justly. You treat them righteously. And so again, uh, the only real passage speaking to this particular issue uh, where Jesus is offering this up is ultimately all about the law in a good way, not a bad way. That being said, that being said, faithful obedience to God's law is not easy. According to Jesus, it requires hard work and perseverance that many at time, or may at times seem agonizing. Again, a text that should be familiar to you, Luke 13. Verse 22, he went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying through Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are being saved be few? Jesus says, no, no, one day they'll build, they'll build mega churches, and there'll be lots of people, and they'll preach a message that uh, no strings attached. This guy's picking up what Jesus is putting down. Only a few? Jesus' response, verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. Why? They want to. They're seeking But they can't. Why? Because they won't meet the demands. Narrow means just that, constrictive. We see similar words in Matthew 7. Narrow versus the broad way, the accommodating way. That term, though, there, strive there, I've told you this before. Uh, The term in Greek is agonizomai, from which we get the word agonize, which means what is Jesus saying here? Agonize to enter. The man asking the question, are there only a few being saved? We now know the reason why there's only, be, there's only a few who will be saved because, yeah, it's tough. It is. It's tough. It's doable. Absolutely doable. We've been equipped to do it, but it's tough. There are many dangers and threats out there, the devil being one of them, false teaching being the other, agonize to enter. In relation to sexual sin, a good example of this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, where he deals with sexual sin, and most specifically their masturbation. And uh, he speaks of cutting off the hand and gouging out the eye. And of course, he's not referring to those things in some literal sense. We see this uh, repeated elsewhere, places like Mark chapter 9, which is a good text to turn to. Uh, what he's referring to 
uh, here using this uh, or these two uh, particular ideas or actions as a, uh, a figure of speech, a literary device. What is he referring to? Well, he's referring to taking extreme measures, agonize, do whatever it takes. It's going to be that tough. It will require that kind of change. It will require that kind of discipline. It will require that kind of effort, gouging out eyes, cutting off hands. It's interesting, though, here in Mark 9, Jesus uh, brings it up here in relation to uh, not sexual sin, which tells us uh, just how hard sexual sin is and that we shouldn't be surprised when we see a lot of it. It was true in Jesus' day, it'll be true today. People will fall to this sin, go apostate for this sin. Why? Because uh, they're not agonizing. They're not striving or committed to the, to the degree that they need to be. Well, it's true also in relation to being a bad witness to others. Parents in relation to your children. Friends in relation to your friends. It takes a lot of work to be a good witness. And God expects that you will be that. And he expects that you'll do the hard work. Faithfulness to those types of things are not easy. And that is... a then that is the teaching or what Jesus is getting at in Mark chapter 9 where he also speaks of gouging out the eye and cutting off the hand. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, you were a bad witness. It would have been better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Notice, so in reference to this, you're not being a good witness. You need to make extreme changes. Cut your hand off. Again, not literally, but extreme changes. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell to the unquenchable fire. I love that because here, uh, in deference to what we see in Matthew 5, Jesus is uh, anticipating the kind of response I think that people want to give. Uh, but that's hard. And uh, if I do that, then my life won't be as uh, maybe as uh, enjoyable as it otherwise would have been. Now I can't go to the kind of movies that I want to go to. I can't listen to the types of things that I want to listen to. I can't do other things that other people get to do. And so I think that my life isn't going to be as fulfilling. And in some respects, that may be true. Or now people are going to hate me. I'm going to have less friends. Yes, that too may be true. But better that you enter into eternal life. And live this life crippled than not crippled with a past to do whatever you want and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Isn't that his point? Same thing, verse 45. If it causes you to sin, cut it off. It'll be better for you to end life lame than with two feet. See, Jesus is anticipating what people think, what we think today, right? Oh, yeah, I can't do that either. I can't watch that show? Oh, come on. Those things are boring. It may be boring. You, my wife, and I watch the same stupid stuff over and over because there's hardly anything out there that's new that's worth a darn that we can watch. Morally so. And you know what? It gets dry and it gets boring. All the time it's that way. But you know what? I would rather enter into eternal life, which will never be boring, and live a boring life in that respect now. And again, that's Jesus' point. 
You say, well, that's agony. Well, if you want to call it that. Okay. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It would be better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, which is a way of referring to hell, that it's eternal. You don't just burn up and that's the end of it. A position known as annihilation. It's not true. It's heresy. The worm does not die that's feeding on you. The fire is not quenched. For everyone, interesting here, now he then ends it this way, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the saltiness or the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have therefore saltiness in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That last part is uh, similar to what we see in uh, the end of Luke 14 where Jesus talks about counting the cost. But verse 49, what does he mean there by for everyone after saying this, establishing these particular expectations, right? This is the, the extremes that you need to go to, that you do need to agonize if you're going to enter the kingdom. Why does he then say for? Here's the reason why. Everyone will be salted by fire. If you have a, a footnote there, it will be helpful. Some manuscripts add, and every sacrifice will be salted with salt. I believe that that's what this is referring to here by being salted with fire. Again, another allusion to in the Old Testament where uh, salt was used. God said that salt was to be a part of all of the sacrifices, and the salt represented execution of the covenant. We know that. Putting then that all uh, back together into why it is that Jesus uses it here. Uh, Here's what will be expected of you, the sacrifice that will be required of you. Well, understand that there has been a sacrifice made for you, a fiery sacrifice, just as the lambs were put to fire and Jesus is uh, now alluding to his own death later. He will make sacrifice. This goes back to 1 Peter 1. Precious blood will be spilt. And every fiery sacrifice expects execution. Which really drives the point home, I think, or at least it tells us why it is that uh, we should expect to have to agonize. Here's why. Because the sacrifice that will be made for you expects execution. The grace that is extended, the forgiveness that is extended, expects execution. Hence the reason when we take the table and uh, we do more than just remember, we receive again the forgiveness that comes through that fiery sacrifice. We also again commit ourselves to what? Faithfulness of life. And we proclaim that, that death in that way, a death, a sacrifice that expects execution until the Lord comes. It is our obligation until the Lord comes to be faithful in that remembrance that with every sacrifice it is salted, which is, again, the symbol of our commitment in execution. That grace is not free, it expects execution fiery forgiveness or grace received expects faithful follow through no matter the cost whether it be eye or foot or hand otherwise your end will be in fiery hell where the worm does not die 
that the fire is not quenched. The truth then that this lie often conceals, this lie that uh, you can rest in grace and remove the burden of obedience. The truth this lie often conceals or is confused about, and this is uh, attempting to give them some credit that the problem is at least somewhat intellectual rather than just all moral. Obedience is not contrary, and that's how they treat it, right? You either obey to get to heaven, you're working your way to heaven, or uh, you rest in Jesus and his work. Well, here's what they miss. There's a third option. We sometimes call this the fallacy in logic, the fallacy of the excluded middle. Obedience is not contrary, but complementary to grace and faith. You say, well, how so? Complementary. Not contrary, but complementary. What was gained by grace, and we saw this, unto a future grace or inherited future inheritance or inherited blessing. What was gained by grace initially through faith in Christ, our justification, our positional right standing, which makes uh, the end of those laws truly the end of those laws. He is now our law for righteousness, that beginning positional state. What was gained by grace through faith in Christ for those things must now be maintained through obedience to God's moral commands. Which is why we have Paul again saying after Romans 10, where he says Christ is the end of the law, or to keep the law. As that, uh, that uh, by the way, he says, let one thing remain outstanding, love. That that's the one thing that you will continue to to do, which fits very nicely to what I said earlier, until the Lord comes. You will maintain what it is that you've gained. Just like my marriage, I gained that on that special day, but uh, I have an obligation now to maintain it. Can I maintain it? Absolutely. Perfectly? No, but faithfully, yes. Hence the reason then, and I'll close with uh, this wonderful verse, James chapter 2, verse 24, you see, The person is justified or made righteous by works and not by faith alone. Yeah, I gain it by faith. But if I'm going to have that future justification, that future grace, if I'm going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into your glory, then I need to be working and living and obeying God's law. I need to carry and agonize to carry that burdened, that burden that was given to me so graciously through the precious blood, the precious and costly sacrifice of my Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the goodness of your word. Thank you that uh, we learn in places like 1 Corinthians 14 that you are not a God of confusion but of peace. And I love that Paul puts it that way there because it tells us that what often causes chaos, another thing that causes chaos in our lives, tension, is not understanding. And what I believe we've seen here today makes sense. It brings understanding to your word. There's no contradiction Grace 
and obedience are not contrary to each other. They complement one another. Thank you for teaching us that here today. And equip us, Lord, use us to share that with others, a world that is lost. Give us hearts like our King that are compassionate for these people who are without true and wise shepherds given by you to feed them in knowledge and understanding. Make it so, we pray. In Jesus, our King's name, amen.